Hi, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to episode five of ONP Research Insights, presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetics. I'm Dr. Steve Gard, Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Russell Esposito, PhD, who's been a researcher in orthotics and prosthetics with the Extremity Trauma and Amputation Center of Excellence for the past 10 years. Dr. Russell Esposito's research has been focused on the biomechanics and energetics in individuals with lower limb musculoskeletal trauma. The goals of her research are to optimize prosthetic orthotic device prescription and improve rehabilitation care. She began working in ONP at the Center for the Intrepid at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, and more recently at the Center for Limb Loss and Mobility at the VA Puget Sound in Seattle, Washington. Earlier this year, she transitioned away from her researcher role and is now leading the neuromuscular injury treatment portfolio for the Military Operational Medicine Research Program. Today, we're going to be discussing a recent article that Elizabeth published in JPO entitled, Focusing Research Efforts on the Unique Needs of Women Prosthesis Users. So welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me today. And before I start, I just need to give a quick disclaimer as I am a government employee that all the views that I'll express today are those of my own and not those of the government. Right off the bat, I'm intrigued by this title. You've got two very important points that I want to get into here, and I think it's going to lead to deeper discussion. But first of all, just suggesting that women prosthesis users have unique needs. So can you kind of expound on that a little bit? Absolutely. So most of the research that we have seen out there um, and that has been published has not been specific to uh, the needs of women. It has either represented both genders kind of uniformly or has uh, largely targeted men. And women represent about 35% of all individuals with amputations. And uh, the research that has come out there and some of the, the clinical recommendations do suggest that women do have different needs than their male counterparts. And where those needs uh, differ really span a wide variety of different areas. So my group has focused a little bit more on the footwear piece of it, whereas other groups have focused on body image and other groups still have focused on other psychosocial differences with the women prosthesis users. And so what we've tried to do with this article here is start to highlight some of the existing literature that has previously come out and then start to highlight some of the projects that are ongoing that will start to produce some of um, the evidence-based research soon to kind of differentiate uh, where the research stands on male prosthesis users and also the, their female counterparts. So I felt like a very important aspect of this article that you published was kind of creating this awareness that men and women are different in terms of their prosthetic needs. For sure. And um, as, as part of this, and this is really a collaborative effort on this article uh, with Matthew Major, Dr. Matthew Major at Northwestern University, and Dr. Andrew Hansen at the Minneapolis VA. And what we've tried to 
do with this article is start to highlight some of those existing challenges and the limitations and the gaps that are currently out there uh, in the research specific to women and that limited uh, information that we have thus far. And we've tried to use some of those gaps to spearhead some research projects in a team science approach to figure out what are the next steps forward and how we address these differences between the men and the women and um, address some of the needs that have been recognized previously that are just specific to the women already. And that was kind of the next part of my question uh, was not only creating an awareness that men and women are different in their prosthetic needs, but emphasizing that there is need for more research, particularly on women amputees here. So can you speak to that a little bit more? Where, where did this kind of motivation come from? Well, it's coming from a lot of different areas, uh, truthfully. And so you, if you are looking at this area and if you are a researcher in this area or a clinician in this area, you've probably started to hear a growing narrative and a growing dialogue on the specific needs of women prosthesis users. Um, where it started, I, I don't necessarily know, but we've started to see in the calls for research funding, the specific need. It's been on both the DOD side and the VA side in the most recent clinical practice guidelines, you can see language um, even from the 2017 DODVA clinical practice guidelines for care of individuals with lower limb amputation, you can start to see these topics come up where we need to look at a person's um, recognized gender as part of the, the treatment program for these individuals. Where kind of it initially started, um, I, I don't know who was the first one to necessarily say we need to start start looking at this, but thank goodness somebody is saying it because the more that we explore this area, the more that we realize that there are these uh, recognized challenges and, and limitations in this patient population. And there's more work that needs to be done in this area to try to resolve some of the existing challenges um, that this specific patient population has. And as a VA researcher myself, I was aware of these requests for applications that the VA came out with a few years ago, kind of emphasizing this need for more research on prosthetics involving women specifically, which I think is wonderful. What specifically was the purpose of your article here? What were you trying to address? What we're trying to address with this article is to start to showcase some of those needs and put them all together into a single place. So right now, if you were to go out there and you start to hear this dialogue of the increased challenges with women with amputation, you really kind of have to look in a variety of different places to try to find the information that can help you get to the answers that you might be looking for. And so what we tried to do was pull together a large portion of the research that was out there and existed already to show what had been done already and put it into a single place within JPO. And then also really try to start to uncover what some of those existing gaps are that we can target. So some things are modifiable, some things are not modifiable, and especially with those modifiable ones, we want to be able to make um, noticeable clinical change if it's possible. So let's start talking about some of these specific areas uh, that require further investigation and uh, what you found so far. So in terms of lower limb prosthesis users, what do we need to be looking at, particularly to women? With our group, uh, we targeted footwear. Uh, first and foremost, because this was one of the things that kept coming up 
And it was one of the things that the, um, the women patients that we had been uh, seeing at the Center for the Intrepid had brought up multiple times. So I actually fell into this area in, in a really interesting way, if I can just give you a little bit of my backstory. There was a woman prosthesis user at Center for the Intrepid at Brook Army Medical Center who came into the lab with her prosthetist and said that she walked better in her four-inch stiletto high heels then she walked with her um, gym shoes, her flat athletic shoes. And so we did a biomechanical gait analysis on this to try to put some uh, evidence behind some of these claims. And it turned out that in some ways she, she was more symmetrical in her high heels than in her flat shoes. And this really opened the door to this question of um, what kind of shoes women want to wear with their prostheses, because she wanted to be able to wear these four inch stiletto high heels with a ball gown. And uh, so we started asking the question and it turned out more and more times than not that we kept hearing about some of the footwear challenges that the women patients that our clinical teams were seeing were facing. And so that really spurred some of the research that Dr. Major and Dr. Hansen and I have been working on trying to target the footwear needs and some of the footwear limitations and clothing limitations that women prosthesis users have. So we've been targeting this from a variety of different areas. We've been looking at this from seeing what kind of shoes women want to wear and feel like they cannot wear what they wore pre-amputation and now what they feel like they're left with being able to wear post-amputation uh, and what they what they really wish they could be wearing and different footwear challenges that they're facing. We're looking at the mechanical properties of different women's specific footwear with different prosthetic feet. We're looking at um, adjustable heel height feet and how we align them uh, differently for different shoes and how appropriate that alignment change is when we're looking at uh, differences in those heel heights. And we're also looking at the, um, through uh, Dr. Hansen's work, through the development of new um, adjustable heel height prosthetic feet and applications there. And so we're trying to address this from multiple different avenues and multiple different complementary areas to try to get at how much of a problem this really is when we look at it from evidence-based research, and then how do we address it and how do we target it and provide solutions for people? So really spanning the full range of the research there. Well, and I know a lot of listeners are probably going to be familiar with a few prosthetic feet on the market that have uh, manual heel height adjustments to enable people to change the height, heel height of their shoes. But yet a lot of those are still not sufficient and you've actually proposed alternative solutions. Can you discuss that a little bit? So I would say with some of these alternative solutions, the majority of this is Dr. Hansen's work that's being conducted out of the Minneapolis uh, VA. And so with that, what um, his team, and I'm part of this project as well as Dr. Major, is, is doing is using 3D printing technology to be able to nearly perfectly fit the foot within the shoe. So you don't have that interplay there between the foot and the shoe, you have a near perfect fit. And then it's really the ankle that's the adjustable piece of it and um, can attach on and off of those different 3D printed feet. And so um, think about it this way, think about somebody who's packing for a trip 
for example. And instead of having to pack uh, multiple devices or going into like a snowy area, for example, and you need to be able to wear boots, you need to wear um, maybe adjustable, uh, heel height adjustable shoes for a conference, for example. Instead of that, you could have this one device where you have your, your foot within those shoes already, and then you can snap in and out that different uh, prosthetic ankle that has that adjustable height on it. Well, and that's exactly what I was thinking. Are we talking about the need to develop a single device that works with all of these different shoe types, or do we try to develop more affordable, readily available technologies that are specific to different shoes. So the person, instead of just changing shoes, they also possibly change the foot mechanism as well. Yeah, I think it's a really wide open area um, that is potentially not even a one size fits all uh, approach to something like this where different applications might be really well suited for different people or for different needs that those people have. So the, um, the example that I gave you about packing for a trip didn't necessarily come from me. That came directly from one of the patients who, uh, who saw this technology and said, this is exactly what I need that for. Um, it, it was being able to have a solution to a problem that she was facing on a, you know, a monthly basis. So I think that to answer your question, question in, in maybe a roundabout way. I, I think that the solution of cost-effective adaptability might suit some people very well, where a multiple devices might meet the needs of, of another patient. And so it's really getting into what are the specific needs uh, that we have for the specific patients. And I've, I learned long ago in this area, mainly with talking to a lot of the clinicians, that we don't necessarily have to find the 90% solution for everybody out there. If we find a solution that meets 30% of the need, well, then perhaps we've just captured 30% of the market that's out there. Excellent point. Something else that you've mentioned a couple of times that I picked up on, important lessons learned here is communication from the prosthesis users themselves about what they like or don't like about their prostheses. Because you gave a couple of anecdotes about how you heard directly from prosthesis users what they liked or disliked about their shoe selection. And so I think, you know, a lot of listeners out there may want to inquire, for example, about shoe usage by their lower limb prosthesis users, particularly the women. Find out what it is that they like or don't like. But not only the prosthetists, uh, I think researchers need to be hearing this as well, that it's important to get feedback from the end user and help guide and formulate research ideas and things that we need to be focusing on. That's exactly true. And we did this study, you know, putting out a questionnaire to, uh, and we received responses back from 100 women prosthesis users, where we were looking at what types of footwear did they actually want to wear, but couldn't wear. And so even though only one to two of our survey participants ever even wore high heels after their amputation, it turned out that over 20% wanted to be able to wear these shoes. And boots also, you know, boots were very challenging for people to wear. They hardly ever wore them. Uh, the women hardly ever wore them after their amputation. 
but over half of them felt that it was important for them to be able to wear those types of shoes. Not surprisingly, it's athletic shoes that tend to be the most broadly worn post-amputation. And it tends to be the footwear that people wear during their rehabilitation process as well. So maybe there's an opportunity there on the clinical side to incorporate different footwear as part of the rehabilitation process and teaching people how to walk and how to move um, and go throughout their, their daily life within these different types of shoes instead of just the athletic shoes. But when it comes to talking with the actual patients about what their needs are, it's extremely important. And um, one thing that we put at the end of our survey uh, that we sent out to all the women veteran prosthesis users was, what do you want in a prosthetic foot? Like, what is it that's not there already that you that you want? Or what can the VA do for you that's not already going on? And not surprisingly, adaptability was one of the big things that came out of that. You know, the flexibility of having different functionality within a device, or just what you were talking about previously, having more devices that offer that different functionality across devices if it doesn't have to be just within a single one. But yeah, for sure, the adaptability of the heel height ended up being something that came out of that. So I guess in terms of kind of clinical implications about uh, that come out of your, uh, your, your findings from this article, would you say that, let me go out on a limb here, do prosthetists need to be prescribing more ankle adaptable or heel height adjustable prosthetic feet, particularly for women? Is this something that they need to be keeping in mind and inquiring about? Because who knows, their clients may not even be aware that this technology is currently on the market. Potentially, yes. Here's kind of the long answer to your question. Adjustable and adaptable heel height prosthetic feet are currently viewed as this um, kind of cosmetic feature or luxury item for people. But the ability to wear the footwear that women want to be able to wear has real world implications beyond just cosmetics and beyond just simply preference. So these perceived challenges that women face with the footwear that they're able to wear um, post amputation are related to things like the participation in their daily lives. They're related to things like body image. And so they have these real world applicabilities that extend beyond just a preference to wear one shoe over another. So the short answer is yes, I think it does need to be a consideration. And what I hope happens from some of this research is that these adjustable heel height feet are viewed as more than just a luxury item. Excellent point. That's good to know. Good things to keep in mind here. Now, in terms of moving these some of these ideas forward, I realize that maybe you're not going to be directly involved in uh, some of these research efforts, but where do you think we need to be focusing our efforts, particularly for addressing the needs of women, prosthesis users? I think that we need to start doing some of the comparisons between directly between men and women to see where a lot of these differences lie, and it needs to happen on um, a large scale. We've done a little bit of it from our work, and I know that others within VA Puget Sound are are tackling this as well, looking at a variety of different outcomes, not just footwear, but spanning it to psychosocial, um, looking at quality of life, all these different measures. And once we start to know where some of the differences lie, then we can start developing solutions 
to those and uh, evidence-based solutions that have sufficient, sufficient research behind them to really get into the clinical practice guidelines where we can start seeing some changes and, and making some changes there. I think that the rehabilitation field and looking past just the device that we put on the person, but looking at the person who we're putting into the device is an area that is for sure needing attention, of course. Uh, it can be really hard to do in a clinic sometimes, I know, when you're, you have limitations from payers, et cetera, but really being able to invest in the rehabilitation that people receive uh, in addition to the device and training them and teaching them how to use devices or devices with different footwear, I think that's an area of importance as well. And that's an area, not just that I perceive as important, but that's an area that the research that we've done, even since this article, is showing us is important. No, I agree. Those are all excellent points. Good things to consider for kind of moving these ideas forward. And Elizabeth, one of the uh, things that surprised me in your article that you reported on was that a lot of prosthetic manufacturers don't have prosthetic feet in small enough sizes to accommodate some women. Could you comment on that, please? That's very true. So within certain lines of prosthetic feet from various manufacturers, um, it really doesn't accommodate the full range of women's sizing, whereas it will accommodate largely the full range of men's sizing. So what happens is that women who want to be able to wear some of these uh, types of prosthetic feet are forced to go down to the pediatric line. Um, and when they're making these prosthetic feet, they're largely made not with men or women in mind, um, but it's, it's you know, they, they have their, their molds that they make and um, the sizing is largely accommodating the men's sizing there. And then it's the same as the footwear industry to large part. When you want to make it specific to women, you shrink it and you pink it. And then you have something that is um, marketed as specific to women, where it's really not necessarily meeting the individualized needs there. One of the things that you would actually mentioned in the article as well was the differences in men and women able-bodied in developing secondary health conditions as they age. And incidentally, we are, we're currently doing a study because we know that people who use lower limb prostheses develop a higher incidence of knee osteoarthritis on the sound side. They develop uh, osteoporosis. They develop low back pain at a higher incidence than the able-bodied population. And so we're, we're currently conducting a study looking at differences between male and female lower limb prosthesis users to see if there's a difference in the risk factors or in the incidence of these secondary health conditions. And based upon the data we've collected, we are in fact seeing differences between those two populations. Are you seeing them, at, and you're seeing like the incidence of knee osteoarthritis higher in women? We're looking at biomechanical parameters that may contribute to the development of these conditions. Like at, knee adduction moment and... Knee adduction moment. We're looking at impact forces associated with the sound leg. We're seeing higher vertical ground reaction forces higher rates of loading, some of these kinds of things that would suggest that over time, it could lead to problems. Are you comparing it to the sound limb or are you comparing it to an able-bodied control group? We're comparing it to the sound limb between men and women. And have you looked at the sound limb relative to, because um, you're, well, we're worried about it in the sound limb, but have you looked at those same 
magnitudes in the sound limb relative to able-bodied individuals? I am trying to remember if we included able-bodied whenever we were doing that. I want to say we were looking at able-bodied as well. The reason I uh, ask is because a few, I know a, a few others on the DOD side have looked at this too, and they're always reporting the, you know, the intact side relative to the prosthetic side and showing that they're higher on the intact side. But when you look at it relative to able-bodied controls, it's not necessarily any different during walking. And so the thought process that we had at one point was, well, then maybe they're doing something. Maybe it's not walking that's contributing to the risk of knee osteoarthritis. It, but that reminds me too, a couple of investigators, including Andy Hansen, have actually demonstrated that prosthetic foot selection influences the magnitude of these impact forces on the sound side. Yeah, like powered push-off and such? Exactly. Or even the mm -hmm. length of the keel or the stiffness of the, the keel in the prosthetic foot. So it could be that we need to pay closer attention to some of these design features in prosthetic feet, particularly for women compared to, to male prosthesis users. I think within the range of what you're looking at, within the range of significance there with one foot versus another, I think the key is still is looking at whether or not the magnitudes of those variables, like the knee adduction moment, like the impact loading, um, any of those really rise to the level that they could be indicative of injury. So like, are they, are they greater than like able-bodied controls? or just are they greater than the sound limb? Because I really wonder, based on some of the research that I've done in this area too, I really wonder if walking is what's contributing to the knee osteoarthritis or if it's hopping and the hopping that people end up doing when they're moving without a prosthetic limb. And so not the accumulation of all of those lower magnitude repetitive impacts, but the accumulation of just a few of those higher magnitude impacts. I don't know the answer. And the, the literature is not really clear one direction or the other on it. Um, so I think that there's, there's some more work to do in that area too. Wouldn't it be great though, if we could <laughs> solve these secondary health effects, because that's just the worst, right? right? So you have, you have one leg amputated and then you have one leg that's still intact. And then within five to 10 years, that one leg that's still intact is just going to be in pain. No, I agree. I think there's good research that needs to be done in that area. Yeah, additionally, we're interested in low back pain that develops, particularly in transfemoral prosthesis users. And I think a lot of that may relate to prosthetic alignment that prosthetists do, because I think it tends to pitch the, the pelvis in a lot of anterior pelvic tilt, creates a lot of lordosis, and um, can contribute over time to the development and persistence of low back pain. So we need to change prosthetic procedures, perhaps in order to address some of these issues as well, or prosthetic socket designs. Yeah, for sure. I remember doing the study with Steph on the subitial socket. And one of the things that was commonly commented by the participants was I can sit with my entire backside, you know, sitting on the chair instead of it being hiked up on the side of the prosthetic socket. And so they said they felt like they just sat so much more even and so we were thinking then, of course, well, that could be contributing to low back pain. And so I wonder even with osteointegration, whether there might be something there too, where you don't have like the co-contraction inside 
the limb as much and, and some of those, some of the other musculature that's spanning, you know, the pelvis and, and up to the low back where you might be contracting that at a greater, you know, at a greater magnitude to kind of control that limb socket motion during swing. And if you have mm-hmm. an integrated limb, that, that might take it out of there. I don't know. I think there's a lot of low hanging fruit there, but if we could solve, if we could solve the secondary disability, that's just, to me, that's just the worst is um, trying to, you have an amputation and then you just don't want it to be a downward spiral for people. Yeah. If there's some way that we can mitigate it and stop it. This is my area. These are, these are my colleagues and my friends who have these amputations and these lower limb, this lower limb salvage. Like I'm a, I'm an active duty spouse and my husband introduced me to the entire center for the intrepid because he was a combat injured service member who had both of his legs you know blown apart and so i i didn't even know this area at all until he introduced me to this whole field and then i just handed out my resume until they gave me a job this is an area where if we if there's something that we can modify to make it better on day one so we're not trying to put a band-aid on it you know 10 years down the road that would be fantastic and we're kind of approaching the end of our podcast here. So I wanted to ask you about research funding in this area. Have you received any research funding that you'd like to acknowledge in terms of being able to look into some of these differences in female prosthesis users? Absolutely. We wouldn't have been able to do the research that we've done without the support that we received from um, the Department of Defense through the Orthotics and Prosthetics Outcomes Research Program, and also through VA funding as well. So I'd like to acknowledge our funding sources there. So we've come to the end of our podcast. So I'd like to thank Dr. Russell Esposito for sharing her insights and discussing her research with us today. I'd like to remind everyone that if you would like additional information on her project, you can access the full article about this study in the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. So thanks again for joining us for this episode of OMP Research Insights, presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetics. And again, thank you, Elizabeth, for taking the time and for sharing your insights on this article. My pleasure. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Please plan to join us again next month for the Academy's OMP Research Insights podcast, when we'll be hosting another author and discussing their recent JPO article. Thank you.